The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. Well, it is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and today Dan Blyde will be speaking about the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the door and how they're essential to the historic Christian faith. Let's join Dan now as he looks at the five key ingredients to our faith. Here's Dan. I don't believe it's true that someone came in this morning and looked at the bulletin and said, five solos. And then they looked over at the message page and said, Dan Blight is going to sing five solos, and they got up and left. I don't think that's true, but you wouldn't blame them if you ever sat near me when we sing congregationally. What's even worse is that it's not solos, it's solas, and so I'm speaking in tongues this morning. Actually, the tongue is the language of Latin, and sola means only, because this fall is the 500th anniversary of something, the five solas, and so before we're done this morning, I hope you'll know what those mean, and I hope you'll appreciate this part of our spiritual heritage. But I want to start with a guy, oops, sorry, named Martin. Martin was born to Hans and Margareta Luther just over 500 years ago in Germany. His dad worked in the mines. He'd made enough money in the mines so that he could get his son to go to college. He was thrilled because then his son could become a lawyer and make money and take care of them in their old age. And Martin went to school. He, uh, well, he did pretty well in school. He was a bright kid, but they were rough on kids in those days, particularly in Latin. Uh, if you said something wrong, the teacher would come around and you'd put out your hand and they'd cane you. One day, Luther hadn't prepared his lesson. He got 15 canings. When he went home, his knuckles were bruised and bleeding. It was rough. If you lapsed into German instead of Latin, they made you put a mask on of a donkey. And you had to keep that mask on until you caught somebody else talking German instead of Latin. This is where asinine comes from. (laughs) But Luther had a very sensitive spirit or conscience. He believed, he was a good Roman Catholic like everybody in his town was, he believed that God was righteous and just and he was afraid that when he died and appeared before God that there's no way he was going to go to heaven. This bothered him. One day he was walking to school and as he was walking a great storm came up and a bolt of lightning hit the ground very near to him, knocked him down. He had been thinking about two friends of his that had recently died and had been reminding himself that if that had been him, there's no way he'd be anywhere but now in hell. And so as this lightning struck and he was knocked to the ground, he he cried out, Saint Anne, which was the patron saint of mine, Saint Anne, I'll become a monk if you'll save me. Because becoming a monk was like the best thing, the super spiritual thing you could do. He lived through the storm. But then he realized he'd made a promise to St. Anne. And so he became an Augustinian monk two weeks later. Broke his parents' heart. Dad was angry the rest of his life 
because he was supposed to become a lawyer and make money to support them in their old age. So he became a monk, and he determined he was going to be the very best monk he could be. Some thought that the reason God hadn't judged the world yet was because there were monks. They were the last vestige of spiritual integrity in the world. And so Luther worked hard. He fasted. He prayed. In the winter, he would sleep without a blanket. In the German winters, thinking that God would be happy if he suffered more. He uh, confessed his sins. He went back over all of his life. One time he confessed for six hours, confessing to the the uh, listener, the spiritual director. Finally, the spiritual director said, Luther, come back to me when you have a real sin to, to uh, confess. Got sick of it. He became a lecturer. They asked him to go back to college, so he got a, a master's degree, eventually a doctorate degree in theology. He's a teacher. He uh, read the Bible twice a year. He memorized the book of Psalms, memorized the whole New Testament, memorized much of the Old Testament. None of this helped. He still was greatly, greatly troubled in his conscience. But some of this stuff may have affected his health later. During the rest of his life, he suffered from gout, insomnia, hemorrhoids, gallstones, dizziness, ringing in ears, and a whole lot of other things, too. Well, as a member of the Augustinians, he was sent to Rome when he was about 28 and when he got to Rome, he was excited to go to the, you know, the, the, the home of the Pope, the, the, the base of the church. said when he approached Rome, he said, Hail, hail Rome! But when he was in Rome, he especially wanted to do the things that would help you spiritually. And so he went around to see a number of the different relics and so on. He, he said Mass there. There was a certain place if you said Mass, you'd help your ancestors. He went to the Sancta, the Scala Sancta. There's a picture of them. Still there today if you'd like to go. The idea was that if you would get on your hands and knees and climb up these stairs, they were supposedly the stairs that were outside Pilate's uh, castle that Jesus walked on. And if you got on your knees and every step you prayed the Pater Noster, Our Father who art in heaven, you prayed the whole Lord's Prayer in other words. Then you kiss the, the step. Then you go up to the next step and do it again and again. If by the time you got to the top, you would have freed somebody from purgatory. And so he went up the stairs, thinking as he went, you know, I wish my parents were dead. That way I could do this for them and get them out of purgatory. He was a good Roman Catholic. When he got to the top of the stairs, he said, who knows whether it's so. He says, I went to Rome with onions, I returned with garlic. That was his saying. But meanwhile, during these years, he had been lecturing and studying. He lectured first on Psalms, and then he lectured on Romans and Galatians. Dangerous place to go. Here's what he wrote. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. 
Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through uh, open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Now, when he lived, the Roman church had developed a very elaborate system of uh, penitence, sorry, being sorry for your sin. Here's how it worked. God is willing and able to forgive sins. Amen? I mean, they all believe that too. But God requires some religious act or good deed to prove the sinner was truly sorry. The, the first point has to do with spiritual things. That has to do with eternal life. God can forgive there. But, you know, when you sin, you not only sin against God, you probably affect other people too. And so there are temporal consequences. And the way to take care of those was to do good deeds to show that your penitence was real. And so, if a forgiven sinner died without fulfilling all the things he was supposed to do, he'd spend time in purgatory, paying the rest of those temporal penalties. For example, if you killed someone, that was 10,000 years in purgatory. <laughs> in, uh, in a church nearby where Luther was, there were relics. There were enough relics there that if you went and venerated them, it would give you 1,909,000 and a few years off of purgatory. Everybody expected they were going to go to purgatory. The question is how long you were going to be there. Does this surprise you? Most medieval people thought they were going to spend some time in purgatory. A lot of time in purgatory. But, under certain circumstances, purgatory could be shortened. Does this sound like good news? If now, here's the theory behind this. The saints, Mary and, of course, Jesus, when they got to heaven, they had more than enough righteousness to get in. So their extra righteousness was put in a bank called the Treasury of Merit. And the Pope had the keys to that. And so if you needed a little bit extra to help you, then the Pope could give that to you. How do you like that? Sounds like a pretty good system, doesn't it? The treasury of merit. Well, how did I get something out of the treasury? Well, the Pope had to give it to you. And the Pope would give it to you if, uh, if you were good. If you went on crusades. If you were a faithful Catholic. If you used all of the sacraments. If you traveled around to visit the relics of all the... Uh, Erasmus said... There were probably enough splinters from the cross in Europe to build Noah's Ark out of. They were, they were all over the place. Okay. 
These transactions were called indulgences. And so from time to time, the Pope would announce that there were going to be indulgences. And some of the indulgences would take, you know, 10,000, 100,000, a million years off of your time in purgatory. Sometimes there were plenary indulgences, which took it all away. So those were really desired. You could uh, receive an indulgence by going on a pilgrimage, fighting a crusade. That's where these really started. Uh, Worshipping a specific site or shrine is what Luther thought when he went to Rome. Venerating the saints' relics. Well, Pope Leo X was building St. Peter's Basilica. Yeah, it's the same St. Peter's that's in Rome today. And he'd borrowed a lot of money. (laughs) And so he needed to pay it back. So he thought, let's see, how could I raise some money? I know. I'll offer plenary indulgences. Of course, the Pope's not going to go out and sell indulgences, right? That would be beneath him. And so he farmed it out to the Dominicans. And they went around selling indulgences. And down the street from Luther, a guy named Tetzel set up shop. As he approached the town, it says he was met by dignitaries who entered with him in solemn procession. A cross bearing the papal arms preceded him. The Pope's bull of indulgence was, that's an announcement, was borne aloft on a gold embroidered velvet cushion. The cross was solemnly planted in the marketplace, and Tetzel began. Listen now. God and St. Peter call you. Consider the salvation of your souls and those of your loved ones departed. You priest, you noble, you merchant, you virgin, you matron, you youth, you old man, enter now into your church, which is the church of St. Peter. Visit the most holy cross erected before you and ever imploring you. Have you considered that you are lashed in a furious tempest amid the temptations and dangers of the world, that you do not know whether you can reach heaven, nor of your mortal body, nor of your mortal soul? Consider that all who are contrite and have confessed and made contribution will receive complete remission of their sins. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends, beseeching you and saying, Pity us, pity us, we are in dire torment from which you could redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, We bore you, we nourished you, we brought you up, left you our fortunes. You are so cruel and hard that now you are not willing for so little to set us free. Will you let us lie here in the flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you're able to release them, said Tetzel, for... As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Yeah, what do you think of that? Well, if you walked out of Mass and you heard this guy, would you be inclined to do something? Yeah, he was very effective. Now, he wasn't in Luther's town. He's nearby. Now, Tetzel finished. Will you not then for a quarter of a floor and receive these letters of indulgence through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul into the fatherland of paradise. Won't you? This bothered Luther. He hadn't fully seen how his insight into how one gets right with God was going to affect everything else, but the indulgences helped him begin to think about it more clearly. 
And so on October 31st, 1517, the discerning amongst you will say that was 500 years ago, uh, he posted some debating points, inviting academics to come and discuss these issues on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And if you go there, that's the door. I'm told it's the same door that was there when he posted them. That was kind of like the community bulletin board. Okay. What did he say in 95 Theses? Let me boil it down to you, or down for you. Don't spend the money on St. Peter's. First of all, we should rear living temples, next local churches, only last of all St. Peter's, which is not necessary for us. We Germans can't attend St. Peter's, it's in Rome. The Pope would do better to appoint one good pastor to a church than to confer indulgences upon them all. Why doesn't the Pope build the Basilica of St. Peter out of his own money? He's richer than Croesus. He would do better to sell St. Peter's and give the money to the poor folk who are being fleeced by the hawkers of indulgences. Would this make the Pope happy? No, no. He had a second objection. The saints have no extra credit. Every saint is bound to love God to the utmost. There's no such thing as super irrigation, extra righteousness left over after you get to heaven. If there were any superfluous credits, they could not be stored up for subsequent use. The Holy Spirit would have used them fully long ago. Christ indeed had merits, but unless I'm better instructed, I deny that they are indulgences. His merits are freely available without the keys of the Pope. Therefore, I claim that the Pope has no jurisdiction over purgatory. If the Pope does have the power to release anyone from purgatory, why in the name of love does he not abolish purgatory by letting everyone out? If for the sake of miserable money he released uncounted souls, why should he not for the sake of most holy love empty the place? To say that souls are liberated from purgatory is audacious. To say they are released as soon as the coin in the coffer rings is to incite avarice. The Pope would do better to give away everything without charge. How do you think that went down? 30 says, Christians should be taught that he who gives to the poor is better than he who receives an indulgence. He who spends his money for indulgences instead of relieving want receives not the indulgence of the Pope but the indignation of God. We are told that money should be given by preference to the poor only in the case of extreme necessity. I suppose we're not to clothe the naked and help the sick. Will the charity of God, which is incomparably kinder, do none of these things? Did Christ say, let him that has a cloak sell it and buy an indulgence? Love covers a multitude of sins and is better than all the pardons of Jerusalem and Rome. Well, Luther just wanted to have an academic debate. His students said, wow, this is hot stuff. Let's publish it. This is the only time in history that students published the lectures of their professor, and it became a bestseller. <laughs> All over Europe. Other people have been thinking about pieces of this as well. But Luther's 95 Theses were like a, a match that lit a firestorm of, of controversy. He wanted a debate. Instead, a great movement arose. And although there are many contributing factors, this is generally regarded as the birthday of what we call the Reformation. It spread to Switzerland, a guy named Zwingli and later Luther, uh, Calvin. It spread to England, uh, and a 
I'll talk, tell you more about those guys at the end of the message. Spread elsewhere. Ferment all over Europe. Well, what does all this have to do with the five solas, you will say? Well, the five solas were the beliefs that emerged in this movement that everybody who was part of the Reformation held. This is part of your spiritual heritage if you are a Christian. Okay? That's why I thought we would take time today to talk about it. This is what it has to do with, and I'd like you to know the five solas. I'm not going to give you a quiz at the end, but it would be good for you to know them. Now, if you've not looked in your bulletin, there's a place you can jot these down. The first one is Sola Scriptura. For each of these, I'm going to tell you what was going on, what the Reformation changed, remind you of some scriptures that support this, and then together we'll read from the RBC Statement of Faith. How do you like that? Yeah. I think you'll see some fingerprints there. What was going on? The Roman Catholic Church believed that the Bible was God's Word. The trouble was, how did you understand the Bible? You needed someone who could explain it to you. Ta-da! The church would explain it to you. And so the authorized interpretation of the Bible was by the church. By the way, the Bible was in Latin. It had been that way for a thousand years. Most of the people didn't understand Latin. Many of the priests didn't understand Latin. Although they said the Mass because they memorized it. Here's what they said. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Scripture and tradition church's understanding of the scripture and a few other things we added like purgatory, etc. But the church that was interpreting that Bible was riddled with corruption and everybody knew it. Popes. Alexander the Sixth, you know him as the Borgias. Have you ever heard of Lucretia Borgia? That was one of his kids. He took care of all of his kids very well from the papal treasury. Uh, I'm not even going to describe this for you, but look up Ballet of the Chestnuts. You'll see what he was up to. Julius II, who followed him, was the guy that tangled with Michelangelo. He needed money to pay Michelangelo to do all of those things that were meant to be to (coughs) Julius' glory. And then Leo X, he's the guy that said... Look, if I'm going to be the Pope, I might as well have a good time doing it. And so he wanted lots of money. The bishops. Do you know this name? The simony or simony? Pronounced both ways. This is how you get to be a bishop. You pay money to the Pope. Well, actually, you don't pay money. The Pope says, if I appointed you as a bishop, how grateful would you be? Oh, I'd be very grateful. Could you put that in dollars? I'd be this grateful. No, I don't think you'd be grateful. Okay, I'll give you this many dollars. And so, he'd appoint him as a bishop, and out of gratitude, he would give the amount that he agreed upon. That's called simony. That's called buying church offices. 
Then there were the priests. As I mentioned, they were often ignorant. Typically, they were immoral. Popes had wives, not wives, concubines. Bishops had concubines. And most local priests had concubines. In other words, they lived in a common law marriage. They couldn't get married, of course, because they'd taken a vow of celibacy. Actually, most of the people really preferred that the popes have a, uh, the popes, the priests have a concubine. That kept them from chasing their wives and daughters. You say, well, give me a break. Why did people continue in this? Why didn't they just say, enough? Well, the Roman Catholic Church was the only game in town. They had the means of grace. They could get you to heaven. And the church said this. Even if the pope or the bishops or the priest is immoral and corrupt, if they're properly appointed and they do the rituals exactly right, grace comes anyway. This is called uh, ex opere operata. Okay? So if you need to get grace from this church so you can go to heaven, it doesn't matter if the guy is corrupt. The important thing is, did he do everything right? Luther said, no. The final authority is not the church. Sola Scriptura means only the scriptures. And so when the Catholic Church or its tradition says something that's not true to the Bible, we disregard it. This is earth-shaking in that day. You know these scriptures. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. What's it profitable for? Well, teaching, reproof, correction, and training so that we might be adequate, equipped. In other words, everything we need is in the scriptures. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we have in scripture God speaking. We do not have that in the church. Well, here's what RBC believes. Would you read it together with me? After I find it. (laughs) There we go. We believe the Bible is God's completed revelation and that the original manuscripts were inerrant, free from error. The Bible is wholly true, accurate, and trustworthy and is the supreme and final authority in all matters to which it speaks whether ethical, moral, behavioral, doctrinal, historical, geographic, or scientific. We believe an accurate understanding of the Bible in its entirety is arrived at through a normal, historical, grammatical, and contextual interpretive process. Sounds like I got some Reformation people out there. The second sola is solus Christus. The ending changes on sola for some of these because of grammatical gender, but they're all solas, okay? This is only Christ. But as you can understand, 
the church and the priest was kind of in between the person and God, weren't they? They were helping <clears throat> Christ. One of the particular ways they helped was with these indulgences. Plus, the priests were involved in the means of grace, as they were called, the holy sacraments. And if you participated in those, you got more grace. The Reformation said, no, Jesus is the only way. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the only way we can get right with God. The church can't do that for you. The only high priest we need, by the way, Pontifex Maximus means the chief priest, okay? That was the Roman Pope. The only high priest we need is Jesus, they said. As Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so here's what RBC says. We believe together, we believe God the Father, by his love and grace, gave his Son as the sinless substitutionary sacrifice. In the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, full payment was made for sin, and God's perfect justice was satisfied, resulting in the salvation of those who believe. The third sola, sola gratia. Gratuity, grace. Grace alone. The medieval church believed that God will not deny his grace to those who do what they can. What's our modern version of this? God helps those who help themselves. Good. They believe that their own free will and cooperation with grace was their part in salvation. So forgiveness comes not by the unmerited grace of God, but by obedience to the commandments that you fulfill because you have grace, which you got in the sacraments. You see how this works? you got to keep getting grace so that you can obey, so that you can merit heaven. There were seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. Sometimes it's called final unction. They thought they were all instituted by Christ. That's what they said. Luther was amazed to discover as he studied, began to study the Greek because they had the Greek Testament for the first time in a thousand years that the Vulgate mistranslated one of Jesus' remarks in the Gospels. It's, the, the Vulgate said, do penance. But in the Greek, it was repent. There was no basis at all for the whole system of confession and penance in Scripture. Participated in, if you did these, you would get grace. That would give you the power to obey God to merit salvation or at least to get to purgatory. The Reformation says no. Actually, a person is declared righteous before they begin to become righteous. God's grace isn't some kind of water that's poured into our soul, spiritual juice. God's grace is his kindly disposition toward us, not giving us what we deserve. It is by grace. And if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. You know these scriptures, don't you? They were in the Bible back then too. Together. We believe, however, that Adam sinned. And as a result, all people are sinners by nature and choice. And prior to conversion are spiritually dead and at enmity with God. Because sin is rooted in the core of their being, they are totally incapable of being reconciled to God apart from divine grace. Closely associated with sola gratia is sola fide. You Marines will think of semper fidelis, right? Always faithful, fide, faith. What was the situation here? Grace was more like a substance than an attitude. It was water, as I mentioned, poured into the soul to help you grow to become saved. But you were saved by your works. The purpose of grace was to transform a person from a sinner into a saint, a bad person into a good person, a rebel into an obedient son or a daughter, thereby meriting heaven. Okay? So they would have agreed. We all start out as... Sinners, bad persons, rebels. But if you get grace, it'll help you to become good enough so you can get to heaven. To say this differently, the medieval church held good works, including participation in the sacraments, was required for salvation. So salvation required faith plus works. The Reformation said, no. Uh, when a person turns to Christ, at that moment, he is clothed in his perfect holiness so that even though the believer is still sinful, he is seen by God as blameless. When I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees me as if I was as righteous as Jesus. By my faith. Not because I have become wonderful. Jesus' perfect righteousness is applied to my account. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We maintain, wrote Paul, that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is what Luther wanted so badly. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. RBC has a great deal to say about these last two. Together, we believe personal salvation is received through faith in the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ alone, apart from any human merit, deed, or ritual. Upon faith, God forgives, redeems, justifies, and gives eternal life. God's faithfulness guarantees the security of all believers. And here's more. We believe those who repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are reconciled to God. 
We believe genuine saving faith should and will be evidenced by a life of faith expressed through obedience to the word, righteous living, and good works. We believe salvation is provided wholly by God's grace alone and received through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You think we stole that from somewhere? Finally, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. In the medieval church, there were a lot of people you were supposed to please. The pope, the bishops. There was this long list of rules you were supposed to keep. You were especially supposed to give glory to Mary and to the saints, and of course, to the pope. The Reformation said... Oops, the Reformation, what happened? Oh, I'm going backwards, pardon me. The Reformation insisted that God's glory was the goal of our lives. They believed that we needed to be more God-centered rather than man-centered. God is not a means to an end, for he is the means and the end. He is the only one to receive all the glory. I think you all know that you hear that often around here, don't you? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify my Father who is in heaven. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so, we believe that humanity was created together for the purpose of glorifying God, enjoying his fellowship, and accomplishing his will. Well, what happened to Luther? Well, in the years, a couple years following, he continued to write. He continued to think through and write more bombastic things. So much so that the Pope finally gave him 60 days to retract it all on pain of excommunication. He didn't, he was excommunicated. The bull, the document that came from the Pope, arrived and said, Hello, Martin, you're excommunicated. I'm paraphrasing. He burned it. I know, I know. Something had to be done. The Pope called on his buddy, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, and said, Charles, you've got to do something about this. So Charles called a, a diet, a, a diet, as we would say, at a place called Worms, Worms and German. This is not a new diet to take. This is a, an assembly of nobles. Luther was invited to go. He thought to defend what he'd been preaching and teaching. He remembered, of course, that a hundred years earlier, a Czech, they were called Bohemians then, named Jan Hus, also had been invited to go. He had said some of the same things Luther had said. And, and they promised him safe passage. But when he got there, they didn't let him present. They tortured him and burned him at the stake. Many of Luther's friends said, don't go. The same thing's going to happen to you. Luther said, I'm going to go. And he went prepared for debate. When he got there, he was surprised to learn that there wasn't going to be a debate. That a representative from the Pope was there and said, Luther, are these all your books? And he spread out all the things that Luther had written, and Luther looked at him and said, yes, these are my writings. 
Would you like to debate? No, no. Would you, will you recant them? Will you retract them all? After all, Luther, do you think you're the first guy in a thousand years that saw the truth? Has the church of Jesus Christ been wrong for a thousand years? Who do you think you are, Luther? This shook him. He said, may I have some time to ponder my answer? They gave him 24 hours. And so he went back, thought through it all again, came back the next day. And he said, I will not recant. Unless I am convicted of error by the scriptures to which I have appealed and my conscience is taken captive by God's word, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. And they ushered him out. He was on his way home because they were temporarily honoring the safe passage. But after he left, some of the others that supported him left, and here was the edict that the Diet of Worms put out. For this reason, we forbid anyone from this time forward to dare, either by words or by deeds, to receive, defend, sustain, or favor the said Martin Luther. On the contrary, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic, as he deserves to be brought personally before us or to be securely guarded until those who have captured him inform us, whereupon we will order the appropriate manner of proceeding against the said Luther. Those who help in his capture will be rewarded generously for their good work. Well, on his way, he was kidnapped by friends who took him to Wartburg Castle and hid him there as George the Knight for the next year. By the way, while he was there, he translated the Bible into German and thereby founded what we would call High German that's still used today. He didn't get killed. He went on to minister for many years. And, of course, the Lutheran church or the Lutheran movement came out of this period. But as I mentioned, it was going on elsewhere. And so this great movement was called the Reformation. 500 years this fall. I wonder if you can celebrate this anniversary. It's not like typical anniversaries where you were born or got married. Do you understand these solas? Sola Scriptura, only the Bible. Solus Christus, only Christ. Sola Gratia, only grace. Sola Fide, only faith. Soli de gloria. Glory only to God. Do you understand them? Do you believe them? If you believe them, then this is an anniversary for you. Would you rather die than deny them? Over in England, there was a guy at this time, a king named Henry VIII. Have you heard of him? Mm-hmm. There were some efforts to try to bring this Reformation forward there. Under Edward VI, his son, Protestantism, as it began to be called, began to move. 
And there were a number of powerful uh, theologians and preachers, Hugh Lattimore, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer. But then Edward VI died and he was replaced by Mary, Bloody Mary, we know her historically. And she decided to persecute all those who had been putting forward this terrible notion, these solas. Ridley and Lattimore went first. They were burned on the stake together. As they were ready to be burned, Ridley said to Lattimore, play the man, be strong. Maybe we can light a candle by God's grace in England that will never go out. A year later, Cranmer was brought to be burned. Under Bloody Mary, Cranmer had been imprisoned and it appears brainwashed and had signed a recantation. But then, freed, he came to his senses, and so he was brought to the stake. And he said, look, I want you to tie me up in such a way that I can put my hand in the fire first, because this is the hand that I signed the recantation with. And I want that to go first. People suffered and died for the sake of these things that we believe, receive, joyfully sing about. And this is the 500th anniversary of the five solas. Can you celebrate this anniversary? Are these yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for a salvation full and free in the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace received through faith. We pray, Lord, that we might be people of the book, Sola Scriptura, and we might do all things to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.